This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. In Ezekiel 36, God promised to vindicate His holy name so that the nations would know that He is holy. In that same chapter, however, He also promised that there would come a time when He would give His people a new heart, a heart of flesh, as it were, and that He would put His Spirit within us, with the result that believers would walk according to His Word. We think of the Holy Spirit relative to creation and relative to His role in giving new life. In the Nicene Creed, we confess that He is Lord and giver of life, but sometimes we might forget that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of holiness, that He is the Holy Spirit. Here to help us think through these issues is the Reverend Dr. Howell Jones. He's Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. This is the 50th anniversary of his ordination to gospel ministry, so we're very happy to have him here with us as he joins us to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. He served as principal of the London Theological Seminary and as co-chair of the Westminster Fellowship of Ministers, succeeding Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's author of several books, which are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Hull, and welcome back to Office Hours. Many thanks, Scott. We think of the Holy Spirit in creation, hovering over the face of the deep. We think of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. We think of the Holy Spirit as our helper. We think of the Holy Spirit as the one who gives us new life, raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life. But sometimes, remarkably, we forget that the Spirit who does all of these things is the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to focus on in this episode is the role of the Holy Spirit in producing sanctity in the life of the believer. How do we begin to think about the Holy Spirit relative to our sanctification, our progressive conformity to Christ and His image? Can I begin here? No one likes to be told what to do or how to do it, much less how to do it. What to do is more than enough, but to be told when he or she has done something that they've not done it in the way in which it was expected with the right spirit or attitude is exceedingly tough to take. And that is where the preaching of the law has to reach, not merely to announce vetoes, not merely to express demands positively, but to indicate that they ought to be done out of love and gratitude to God. And the Spirit is the one who gives those. He, therefore, is absolutely essential for that performance of the law, which is not merely external, but is internal. Love is the fulfilling of the law, which doesn't mean that love cancels out law. It means that law cannot be properly done apart from love and gratitude. So the Spirit is essential. And he is the person of the Trinity, in particular, who works within. The Father plans, the Son performs, the Spirit works within the heart of the sinner. 
The last time we were together, you made a note on which we meditated for a while that sanctification is a Trinitarian act, that the Father plays a distinct role in sanctification in drawing us and in desiring and in commanding. The Son plays a distinct role in accomplishing redemption. And through the Father and the Son, it's from the Father and through the Son, or however we want to put that, that the Holy Spirit comes to the believer and that the Holy Spirit has a distinct role. And last time we talked about the Father's role and the Son's role, and we only touched very briefly on the Spirit's role. What is distinct in the Spirit's role in sanctification? And then perhaps we'll look at some places in Scripture where we see that illustrated for us. He makes Christ known to us. That was the promise given to the disciples in the upper room. And he makes Christ present to us. So as Jesus is the human embodiment of all that is in accord with the law, in accord with the character of deity. The Spirit presents us with a a living and powerful illustration of not only what we should be, but of what we can be, or can become, or should be, and should become increasingly. The Spirit makes him present and makes him potent to us. So that is uniquely, I think, what the Holy Spirit does. He emphasizes that the incarnate Son of God is the pattern to which we ought to seek to conform in holiness. The Spirit is revealed to us in Genesis, which we see more clearly looking back now from the perspective of the fulfillment of all the promises and the fulfillment of the types and shadows. We can look back and see that the Spirit hovering over the face of the deep is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. And it's with that understanding that our forefathers at the Council of Nicaea and thereafter in the later additions to the Nicene Creed at Constantinople, so the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, described the Holy Spirit as the Lord and giver of life. Now, you and I are Reformed, we're Calvinists, and so we understand that as a consequence of the fall, all human beings are dead in sins and trespasses, and that no one comes to new life except the Holy Spirit gives that new life. But the new life doesn't just end with the creation of it. How do we relate sanctification to that idea in the Nicene Creed of the Spirit as the Lord and giver of life? Well, he creates a disposition which was not present before and builds on that and enhances it in various ways. It's because of that internal work that Christ's commands are not grievous. It's because of that internal work that even the Father's chastisement is not crushing. It's because of that internal work that the commands that forbid sin are accepted and to pursue what is good and right and true is also accepted. And it's by his strength alone that any of these things can be done to any degree. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In Romans 1.4, Paul connects the Holy Spirit to the resurrection of Jesus. 
And there he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of holiness, which is an interesting way of speaking that does begin to cause us to think about the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification, that the same spirit who confers life, as illustrated by the resurrection of Christ, whereby he was shown to be God the Son and declared to be the Son of God in power, our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says. The one who did that is the spirit of holiness. What is the connection between the new life that we have and the spirit of holiness? He implants a hatred of sin and a love of righteousness. In addition, we can say that he can be grieved. He can be resisted. Apostle says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption, so that he perseveres with us in spite of the unholy struggle which we wage against him. And you're talking about believers there. Oh, no, indeed, indeed. (laughs) <laughs> well, you say, oh, no, but there are folk who would say, well, you know, that could never be said of a Christian. But your immediate instinct is to say, oh, no, of course, that's the life of the believer, right? Oh, indeed. Hence, put off, put on. Hence, the good that I would, I do not. Galatians 5, the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit, so that you cannot do the things that you would. The uniqueness and irreversibility of God's regenerating work is a fallback blessing that what he does in that way cannot be undone. We will never again be what we were. We have become something new, but we are not yet what we ought to be and what by his grace we will one day fully be. So we're both new creatures and in process. Yeah, indeed, because just as the Trinity is involved in sanctification, so there's an unholy Trinity to oppose it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm. And while we can say that there are only three enemies that we have to face... (laughs) Those are mighty enemies. Well, indeed, and they cooperate in an infinite number of ways. The world is multifaceted. The flesh is not just body. That's a mistake, isn't it? Not just physical. That's a mistake that has often been made through the history of the church, that the more we treat the body with harshness, the more spiritual and holy we become. So there's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil. And he uses each of those and both of them together so that we are in the fiercest battle conceivable, and it will last the whole of our lives. I want to explore several things that you've said here. Let's go back and look at each one of these individually, and then I want to back up and talk about this business of grieving the Holy Spirit and the dynamic of the Christian life. Let's start and work through these in sort of good, Reformed fashion, one at a time. The world. When you use that word, you're using it in the biblical sense. You don't mean everything that is necessarily. In what sense are you using the word world there when you talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil? I'm using it in the sense that it refers to fallen mankind and all the culture which stems from the fall. Is it fair to characterize it as that which is opposed to God, to Christ, and to the Holy Spirit? Oh, indeed. Though the creation is 
affected by the consequences of the fall. It's still aflame with the goodness of God, and God's providence is still active in connection with it. So to deny the material and deny the physical and believe that thereby one is automatically becoming more spiritual, withdrawing from the world monastically, or living an ascetic life, or somewhat pharisaically identifying particular pursuits and particular places as the sum total of worldliness. You don't do this, you don't do the other thing, and think, and then you're automatically growing. No, that isn't that at all. The world is like an octopus. It entangles. It entangles in an infinite number of ways. And behind it is the enemy of our souls and God's glory in us. And that's a really important thing to remember because we live in a time where the evangelical world in particular is in transition from the sort of old fundamentalism, which had the virtue of believing the Bible ardently and defending it, but which had the weakness of, in some cases, defining sanctity in terms of a list of do's and don'ts, which were, shall we say, difficult to justify, sometimes from Scripture. And now there are folk sort of abandoning those lists of do's and don'ts, which is a good thing. And yet that abandoning is coming at a time when we are increasingly, as Christians, whether fundamentalist, evangelical, confessional reformed, what have you, all more and more being entangled, as you say, in the world. Even if one wanted to be an ascetic now, it's exceeding difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is. And the contradiction which can be set up in the life of a Christian, if he or she doesn't think of the importance of motives and not becoming dominated by permissible things, is something to consider. We may use the world, but we're not to abuse it. And therefore, just as you say, asceticism is rare now, perhaps it's opposite, namely becoming worldly in a true sense, inwardly flesh and spirit, as well as outwardly in terms of deeds and words, is something that needs to be borne in mind. In the second century, the Christian church faced an enormous opponent, Gnosticism, the great heresy of Gnosticism. And the Gnostics said that the fundamental problem that we face isn't sin, it's our humanity, it's creation. And they said the material, physical world is intrinsically evil. And from time to time, even after the second century, Christians have fallen into that way of thinking. You're an Old Testament scholar. You taught Old Testament on an academic level for a number of years before you became a professor of practical theology. Help us think through the error of this Gnostic denial of the goodness, the inherent goodness of creation. Well, what's said about Genesis 1 and God taking delight in the work of his hands, that's one thing. Then think of the magnificent poems of praise in which the variety and the wonder of God's works is celebrated along with his redemptive activity. Both together, there's no contradiction between the two, and so any selectivity is completely inappropriate. And then he uses human beings and uses their bodies. He uses governors and their activities. It's not possible to look at either old or new and draw a satisfactory line between the spiritual and the physical. Inevitably, it will result in contradiction. Won't work. Now then, in the New Testament, we're told everything that God has made is good if it's received with thanksgiving and set apart in prayer. So all good gifts are to be used as part of our sanctification. We relate them not in terms of nature worship or chance 
or our ability to grow things, we relate them to a Heavenly Father who feeds and sustains His people. You're called to holy living, but how to grow in holiness? Watch Westminster Seminary, California's Transforming Grace Conference, January 17 and 18, 2014, via live streaming video on your computer or mobile device. Join Mike Horton, W. Robert Godfrey, and others to learn how the same grace that saves you also transforms you. Go to wscal.edu slash conference 2014, wscal.edu slash conference 2014. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. The Apostle Paul makes clear in Colossians that we may not say, don't touch, don't taste. We may not make up those kinds of rules and impose them. The Apostle Paul explicitly opposes that kind of false asceticism. And as the church at least appears to become more worldly, it's likely that there will be a reaction toward, historically, if the pattern is followed, toward a kind of asceticism and world denial. So that's an important note not to confuse asceticism with sanctification. As Martin Luther noted, when he became a monk, all he did was take his struggle with sin with him into his cell. So the struggle is within us. The second of the great enemies of our soul is the flesh the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these are obviously very closely related, and you already touched on this, but when I say flesh, the listener may be tempted, and we might be tempted to think, well, my physical body. Why is that wrong from a Pauline point of view? Well, because the body that God has given us is is good, fearfully and wonderfully made. But when he thinks of flesh, what he's thinking of is the way in which sin registers itself in our humanity. And he breaks it down to flesh and spirit. So flesh isn't just body, it includes mind, spirit and attitude. Therefore, what we think, our thoughts are to come within the scope of the sanctifying influence of the spirit, just as our words and our deeds are and the use of our bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit himself. It's not only sin that resides there, the spirit resides there. Hmm. What do you think of paraphrasing that Pauline expression with the uh, translation sinful nature? Is that accurate or how would you modify that? I think there's something unsatisfactory about most terms. They need explanation. Sinful nature would do, provided we remember that the new nature is dominant. We are no longer under the dominion of sin. So the old nature is not on equal footing. However grave the struggle, the old nature is defeated. Once and for all and forever in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the teaching of Romans 6, Mm -hmm. right, if nowhere else. So that's really an important point. So as we face the reality, realistically of the struggle with sin, if we follow the traditional Reformed reading of Romans 7, then there is a real struggle to which we'll return in a moment. 
But as we engage that struggle and as we suffer the consequences of that struggle, we do so remembering that there has been a decisive break and a decisive victory accomplished by Christ for us, which is being applied to us by the Holy Spirit. Which highlights the seriousness of sin, that we are taking and using what now belong to Christ Hmm. as if they were our own, not his. Which Paul says, right, in 1 Corinthians, right? That's right. You've been bought with a price. I remember having a conversation with a fellow student when I was here as a student, lo, those many years ago, and he turned to me and he said, you've been bought with a price. Honor God with your body. And that was a powerful admonition. And, of course, arguably the whole Heidelberg Catechism, in a sense, is a reflection of that. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior. Just really an elaboration. You know, and Paul can become very rhetorical, can't he? How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Or, if you were risen with Christ, seek those things that are above, not the things that are below. So the struggle of sanctification is a struggle that goes on between what we have now become and what we once were. Hmm. But it's on the basis of the fact that what we once were will never conquer what we have now become. However grievous the struggle. And we need to remember that. Yeah. This is maybe a good time to go back to the question of the dynamic of the Christian life relative to the Holy Spirit. You mentioned earlier the matter of grieving the Holy Spirit, which is something on which we should probably meditate at greater length. What do you mean or what does Scripture mean by grieving the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is a person, as are the other two persons. They can be pleased or they can be grieved. Metonymy, we're thinking of something human which has reality in relation to the divine, but which isn't absolutely identical with what transpires here on earth. So we have a real choice as a Christian, faced with temptation. Who are we going to please? Mm. Are we going to please the triune God, or are we going to please ourselves? If we please ourselves, we are pleasing Satan. And so you're accounting for and relating the subjective day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions, existential decisions that we as Christians actually make in having been redeemed by God, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are being sanctified, but we really do make these decisions. And there are real consequences to making these decisions. Is that what you're getting at? Well, yes. And the consequences may last a lifetime. Hmm. They leave a mark inwardly. They leave a mark inwardly. They may have an abiding consequence externally. In terms of relationships, in terms of consequences in the visible church, all kinds of... Yes. If we are to be holy in all manner of conversation, in every aspect of life, then the consequence of sin, apart from the mercy of God in hiding it, will show itself across the whole width of our human life, individually and relationally. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. And then there is a third opponent with which we struggle in the Christian life who is intimately related to the world and to the flesh, as we've described him, and he is the devil. Now, there's a great deal in the popular culture about the devil, but most of it comes by way of sort of terror such that he becomes a kind of caricature. The evil one isn't a figure in a horror film. He's a real spiritual entity with whom we have a genuine spiritual struggle. His are the fiery darts, the darts that cause fire. Our flesh and our connection with the world provides him with combustible material, and he knows 
enough about us. God, we thank he doesn't know everything because he can't understand grace. But he knows enough about us to know what will have an effect on one and not on the other. And he'll suit his approach according to that knowledge. So he has some foothold in us, unlike Jesus. You know, the prince of this world comes, he has nothing in me. There was nothing that Satan could make contact with in order to produce an effect. Temptation isn't sin, is it? But there's a lot in us. And so he knows how to strike a chord and to do it with suddenness and unexpectedness. And subtlety. Oh, indeed. You know, the roaring lion, the angel of light. And to confront us with a situation that is totally unexpected to us, with some pressure and need to respond to it. Which is exactly what he did to Eve, isn't it? Well, look here. You know, you're missing out. God knows that the day you eat there of this fruit, you'll be on equal footing with him. And he's worried about that. And he created a situation, at least for the moment, that made it seem as if, well, she had to resolve this in a way. And, of course, we know what happened. And he continues to lie that way all the time, right? Yes, he's a liar and a murderer. The life that he offers is, is in reality death. And he's not seeking your good, is he? And he never sets up a temptation so that it appears to be a temptation. He always sets it up, you know, it's like a fisherman seeking to catch a fish. There's a bait there. He always sets it up as something that is to our advantage. And that is what, of course, produces the attractiveness. There's that big fat worm on the hook, (laughs) right, wiggling away. And you see it out of the corner of your eye and you turn, you think, oh, that looks good. And bang, and next thing you know. Yeah. You're hooked. Exactly. You're hooked. And he's not your friend. Oh, no. He's your enemy. Oh, the God who commands us to pursue holiness is our friend. Mm. Our best, best friend. There can't be anything better than him. As we begin to draw this to a close, and we started off thinking about the Holy Spirit in creation and, and in recreation, and then through the typological language of Ezekiel 36, and he promises us in the new covenant that He will give us a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you, he says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Think with us for a moment about what it means to have this fleshy heart, this new heart as a gift of the Holy Spirit. Our desire to please God is one thing. Grief at having offended him is another. Praying that one might only know and do his will, remembering that he sanctifies us through the means of grace, through the corporate, not just individually, remembering that as we persevere, he has promised to aid us, and he'll never fail nor forsake. So what the Spirit does is to enable us to make that personal connection between a heart, which isn't feeling, though Emotions are not excluded. The heart is the human being in miniature, in cameo. The thoughts of the heart, the will is... So to make a connection between what we are at our core and what God is saying to us, commanding us, promising us, and that's a heart of flesh. It's responsive. The hardness of the heart is a way of describing a condition of imperviousness, resistance, ignorance. A heart of flesh is the opposite of all those things. The Spirit does that, creating response, awakening us again when we've fallen asleep and have become wayward, humbling, bringing us again into the fellowship of his people and making the book, that's his, that's his great instrument, making the written word of God 
alive and useful to us in our desire to please God. And I can think of no worse things than when God doesn't answer our prayers and he doesn't speak to us through his word. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.